0: Welcome to Canthropod, episode 14 Thinking about Vision, an investigation with visually impaired theatregoers and audio describers by Harsha Balasubramanian. Welcome to this
1: episode of Canthropod. My name is Harsha Balasubramanian. It is October 2015 and I'm at the National Theatre in London's West End for the latest production of Jane Eyre, directed by Sally Cookson. I'm here to study audio description, also known as A.D., a facility intended to help those with sight loss fully access art and entertainment. It provides commentary on the visual elements in media, including theatre, cinema, museums and exhibitions. My seat in the National is probably one of the best in the house. It's near the front, where I can best hear the audio description through my headset. Describers sit in a booth often off the main auditorium, usually beside the technicians where they have a good view of the stage. They speak the descriptions into a mic, and their speech is relayed to headsets worn by listeners sitting in the audience. More on the practice of audio description later, but for now, as those around me jostle to take their seats and sift through programs, here is a good moment for laying out my aims in this podcast. The act of audio describing has been around for as long as sighted people have tried to verbalise what they see for their sight impaired companions. Inevitably through these practices there would have developed some understandings of what vision means and what being unable to see means for visually impaired people and for their relationships with the world. When audio description was formalised and began being offered in the UK during the 1980s, these questions were raised as describers sought to agree on what vision is. In my undergraduate fieldwork, I sought to ethnographically document what happens when describers ask, what is vision? This podcast is a distilled sample of my findings. One product of the formal debate since the 80s is a definition of visual elements like the one given by Royal National Institute for the Blind. Visual elements are the features of a performance which a sight-impaired person, quote, might miss if not informed, close quote, such as, quote, actions, style and design of a production, facial expressions, and visual jokes. I will ask whether describers really think about vision in this way. But there's just one thing. Describers rarely, if ever, explicitly question what vision actually means. Instead, they strive to understand vision through considering the experiences and preferences of those without it. As myself, a visually impaired person, describers studied me as much as I attempted to study them. Discussing this question with me will be three audio describers, and a visually impaired listener whom I have interviewed. Like most of their colleagues, two out of three of the describers I've worked with are not connected with a specific theatre. They work from home, or from wherever they feel comfortable, and some move around the country. They can be hard to get hold of, and hang out with, in the anthropological sense. Our chats, therefore, happened over the phone, resulting in some rather crackly recordings. To ensure that they are heard clearly, my interviewees' lines have been spoken by actors. Audio describers start learning how to identify visual elements from the outset of their career. It is a basic part of their training. The chair of the Audio Description Association in Scotland, Amanda Drollinger,
2: told me... There's intensive training on how to watch or look at something and focus just on what is seen and what isn't explained in any other way.
1: This appears to support the definition provided above, namely that visual elements have to be seen and therefore might be missed by those without sight. With that in mind, vision is thought about in terms of the relationship that sight impaired audiences come to have with the performance, that is, one of incapacity, exclusion and otherness on the former's part. However, as my conversations with describers continued, it seemed that this understanding of vision is only the starting point, there are other ideas that enter the mix. As Ross Chalmers, another audio describer, explains, a description does not simply say what sight-impaired audiences would see if they could see.
0: It's really a question of making sure that that person has an opportunity to engage in whichever way they want to engage with the show and decide for themselves.
1: So visual elements are no longer defined by the fact that sight-impaired audiences cannot perceive them. Instead, the emphasis is now on helping visually impaired audiences to engage with the performance as a whole, within which visual elements are recognised as having played a part. Back to Roz.
0: We try to do, say, we need to understand what we try to do is yeah. to say that we need to understand the art. And it's what the art is telling us, not what the person in, you know, row E, seat 29 thinks about it. What you try to produce is a way into that play. Everyone should be able to go everywhere and be able to engage on some level with art. Uh, everyone, everybody should be able to go everywhere and should not be excluded from the art because of a disability or a, a miscomprehension.
1: Further, visual elements are not suggested to be something all sighted people experience. Roz even questions if there can be such a thing as a sighted experience that visually impaired people must match. You can't talk about a sighted
0: experience, you can't talk about a sighted experience as if it's one thing. Nobody has the same experience. Everybody has a different experience. The thing with a, a theatre play, is that everybody in a sighted audience has the ability to see different things and they can focus on different things. They may particularly like an actress, so they'll follow her around the stage, whether she's speaking or not. They may be very much more interested in the design or the lighting.
1: I spoke to Amanda and Roz about how they enable their listeners to receive a unique experience. First, Amanda told me that it's about being aware of other possible interpretations
2: that listeners may make. This is also kind of why it's really important for two describers to always work together in order to write a description. Um, you're only on a very off chance going to get two describers that have the exact same view and perspectives and thoughts about a show, a performance, or a piece of art. And because you've already got two perspectives on what's happening and what's important, it forces you to try and think about what's going to allow a third, a fourth, a fifth person to come to their own conclusion and about how they want to think about what's happening on stage or the piece of art they've gone to experience.
1: Also, describers take efforts to seek feedback from sight-impaired audiences to better understand the latter's perspectives. Alison Woodhouse an audio description user and a theatre director, said
0: I think what works for me anyway is when it's there and you as the audience are aware of it, but it's not at the forefront, if you see what I mean. It doesn't in any way try to take over from the play. It doesn't intrude in any way.
1: In order to not intrude, then, how describers manage themselves is also crucial.
0: Roz again. As describer, you're only part of the listener's experience. Your role is really to bring that show to them in a manner that they will comprehend.
1: So, can describers draw on their personal experiences? Back to Amanda Drollinger.
2: Absolutely. Personal experience is really important in writing and preparing a description, um, largely as a way to get into the show or the performance and understand it better, to be able to share it in a more real or effective way. It's also really important in terms of getting the detail out of the show or a performance or an art form. Teaching isn't quite the right way to look at it, but it's like explaining things, a bit like the news or less than normal to the everyday. And lots and lots of plays and musicals deal with other places where, you know, an audience member may never have been.
1: For Roz, bringing your personal experiences to writing a description is almost inevitable. I describe what I see,
0: but I'm also... I describe what I see, but I'm also bringing my own life experiences. I have likes and dislikes. You know, I do my very best not to put my own self into this, but to look what the character is doing, to look what the designer is doing, so on and so forth. But every time I choose to, to describe this rather than that, because there are lots of things happening on stage. There are actions and there are reactions. And uh, every time I do it, I'm not being entirely objective. What is objectivity? There's no such thing. You have to bring something of your own experience to it. Uh, I bring my own vocabulary to it. I bring my previous experience of audio description to it.
1: Through this delicate balance between using and keeping out personal experiences, describers seek to open up a space for listeners to cast their own interpretations. But again, why insist on sight-impaired audiences making their own inferences? Anne Hornsby, the head of an audio description service called Mind's Eye, and herself a describer, explains. I think that
0: we do need to, I think be, careful. That we do need to be careful about patronising people. We should give them the information they need, without spoon-feeding it to them. Roz adds, What I try to do is, uh, my mantra is, I don't tell you what to think, I tell you what to think about. Uh, I don't say, you must think this about this particular character because I know this or because I've seen the play and I know how he ends up. I try to stay in the moment with that character. I go, okay, he's just killed somebody and he's moping around in his bedroom. And that's what he's doing. He's moping around his bedroom. He's not thinking about the murder. He's not planning another murder. We don't know that.
1: Anne provides
2: another example. I, would say that a character is beautiful. I don't say that a character is beautiful because I think beautiful means a lot of different things to different people. So I might talk about the fresh complexion, the sparkle in the eyes, the regular features, the rosebud mouth. The dimples in soft cheeks, the luxuriance of the hair, and the curviness of the figure maybe, or the muscles in a male figure, or something like that. So what I'm trying to do is give people enough information for them to make the decision themselves. What was the phrase, beauty
1: is in the eye of the beholder? Well, describers intend to preserve that same independent judgement for their listeners. Ross added that sight-impaired audiences, in fact, trust describers, to be honest, unpatronising, and a guarantor of their chance to have independent interpretations. There is an element of trust. People do expect you to be
0: accurate. They expect you to, to be... There is an element of trust. People do expect you to be accurate. They expect you to be saying what's true and what's actually there. They don't expect you to be hiding anything from them. They do expect you to be honest. A lot of people particularly young people, are a little bit concerned about footing around sexual things, they find this quite irritating. For example, if a describer is footing around a sexual thing, such as by saying that someone is making love, when clearly they're not and it's an aggressive act, that is a breach of trust and almost a form of paternalism. I think that you don't want to hear this kind of thing.
1: And yes, I would agree. That Honesty and detail from describers would permit me to draw my own conclusions and contribute to the post-performance chat and reflections amongst friends. So, instead of a relationship in which visually impaired people occupy a position of disadvantage in theatre, audio describers' practices try to make them feel included and independent visual elements are no longer defined by the incapacity of visually impaired audiences to perceive them, but by the fact that they are part of a show which sight-impaired people can uniquely and independently engage with. Hence the contentions about vision in audio description seem entangled with a political project of challenging the apparent marginalisation of sight-impaired audiences in the theatre. The so vision starts out meaning sensory perception, it is quickly conceptualised and then contested in terms of the positions held by visually impaired audiences and their relationships with the world. It is precisely these meanings of vision found in describer's discourses which inform, at least in part, how audio description is written and delivered, I would like to leave you with an example. This is how Anne Hornsby described a wrestling match between two characters from Shakespeare's As You Like It, performed at the Royal Exchange. The fighters square up to each other. Orlando tries to grab hold of Charles, who swipes him away. They circle, tense and alert. Orlando tries another hold, but Charles grasps his arm and swings him. Grappling, they pit their strength against each other. Charles headlocks Orlando. He tightens his grip. Charles spins Orlando. He traps the young man's head between his beefy arms, forces him down and jabs him in the back with his elbow. Orlando staggers but doesn't fall. Charles gestures for applause. The opponents bounce on the balls of their feet, side-stepping round, eyeing each other, ready and primed.